Welcome to the Primary Source Podcast. My name is Tom Bober, a school librarian in the suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. This podcast is here to explore the uses of primary sources in K-12 libraries and classrooms. We'll dig into resources and teaching strategies, talk to educators who are utilizing primary sources, and supporters of educators who curate these incredible items and use them in their work. I want to give just a really brief introduction to the interview we have with librarian Courtney Pentland coming up in just a moment. It's a bit of an extended interview, and I really appreciate the time that she gave us because we ended up having to record it twice because of audio issues. You may also notice that this particular episode is posting a little bit late, and it's not necessarily because of the audio issues, but because of the house issues that have been going on around here where I do my recordings. In the last several weeks, we've had a roof completely taken off because of damage, all the way down to the rafters, put back on, new gutters, all types of banging and clanging and things falling from the roof. And it was just too noisy at the times of day when I would normally record this. And so I've waited until now to put it all together. And I think I actually even edited out a clanging noise when someone came to do some last minute checkups while I was recording my interview with Courtney. I'm really happy that I had the chance to interview Courtney about this idea of not only using local institutions when curating primary sources, but using primary sources when we are teaching about sensitive and possibly traumatic topics. I don't claim to be an expert in this. I don't think Courtney claims to be an expert in this either. But we, in this interview, are giving it our best shot of how we think these topics can be approached and historical items can be used in the teaching of these types of events. I'd love to hear back from you. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Captain Library. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for subscribing. Friends, we are here with Courtney Pentland, and Courtney has, let me just share this laundry list of things that she does in the library world. It's insane. She is a school librarian at North Star High School in Lincoln, Nebraska. She's an adjunct faculty at University of Nebraska, Omaha. She is the Nebraska School Librarians Association chapter rep for two AASL. She's also on NSLA's PD committee, She's the chair, excuse me, of the PD committee. Just at, at the end of 2020, she just finished blogging for Knowledge Quest, and she is currently the School Library Connections Curriculum Connection Editor. And she has made some time with us, and it's probably only because it's her spring break, because I don't know how else she would be able to fit us in. So, Courtney, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I am so thrilled to be here. If, you know, someone gives me a stage to talk about libraries, I will take it. All right. Well, we've got a stage here for you tonight. I want to be really upfront with everybody. You and I had a chance to talk a few months ago on this very topic that we're going to talk about tonight. And I really ended up having audio issues. This is the dilemma with a newer podcast where I'm still trying to figure out the whole interview thing. And then I was almost afraid to reach out to you because at the beginning of 2021, 
I just saw on Twitter all the stuff you were doing, and I thought, I'm not going to bother Courtney. And then at a point, I just said, I've got to swallow every bit of pride I have and just come and apologize. And you were so kind enough to come and revisit this conversation. Um, so thank you for that. I do appreciate it. Absolutely. The thing we did in December was just a delightful dress rehearsal. It, I think it is because as I was telling you right before we started recording here, there's a piece of this talk tonight that I really want to kind of expand on some areas. And so I think that this is actually maybe a blessing in disguise that we had this uh, first recording uh, just have to be tossed away. Um, so I want to go ahead and jump in just for time's sake, because I want mm -hmm. to, I know we've got a lot to talk about. And I want to start in because where this conversation all really began was this idea that you have some examples, some things that you've done with teachers, with students in the past, that I think is really an overlooked area of utilizing primary sources. And that is really focusing on local historical sources, local mm -hmm. history around student learning. So can you start us off and, and share with us um, one example of that? Absolutely. So at a previous high school where I was the school librarian, I was approached by the teacher who taught Omaha history. So I taught um, in a school in Omaha and there was a part of his historical timeline that he was really struggling to get information on and wasn't available online at the time. This was about 10 years ago. So think back to the internet 10 years ago, um, could not find a whole lot of information on it. So he said, hey, can you work your magic and see what you can find? And I said, okay, sure. And I struck out, I couldn't find anything online either. So um, I reached out to our County Historical Society and said, hey, do you know if you would have any information on the specific event that happened? And they said, well, our archives are not digitized. We basically have filing cabinets of newspaper clippings and things like that. You are welcome to come down and look through them. So that's what they did. I was given permission by my principal to go down and I just spent an afternoon like literally going through file drawers of newspaper articles from that time period to find what was being talked about of that event at that time. And I pulled from, I want to say there were probably like four local newspapers at the time. One was the big major paper and there were a couple independent papers and just pulled every article that I could find on the topic. And we put a lesson together based around those articles. So the topic was the race riots that happened in 1968 and 1969 in North Omaha neighborhoods. And one of those riots stemmed from the killing of a 14 year old unarmed black girl by a white police officer. She was at a house party and the police showed up to break up the house party. Kids listening to records, not really anything dangerous. And as she was leaving the house, um, 
she was shot and killed and she was shot in the back. And there was a lot of public outrage as there should have been. And the police officer went to trial and was not um, convicted of any crimes. And there was backlash in the neighborhoods um, around where this happened. And it was not something that you saw reported anywhere online. We couldn't find a whole lot of information on it. The only thing that I could find was an audio recording that PBS had done with Vivian Strong's sister. So Vivian Strong was the young lady who was killed. And that incident kind of stretched a whole bunch of different um, months within that year. So there were, were many different things that happened because of it. And so the newspaper articles that I found went through all of those different pieces. And there were ones that were from, like I said, the major newspaper, there were articles from the black owned newspaper. There were articles from another smaller independent press within the city. And we sat down as a class and they read through those articles and they identified what was the information? How was it presented at the time? What words were used? Um, what was the perspective on what happened? How was it different from one publication to another on how things were covered? And got a really interesting snapshot of how our community was communicated that information. So not necessarily what people knew, but what they were given through news outlets that were available to them. So that conversation really looked at how those race riots of those years changed the way that our city functioned as far as who lived where and what businesses stayed and what businesses moved and, and how that then affected where the city was now. So we used those primary sources to get a historical context to then look at how did this time frame affect how we are now that is a huge endeavor it sounds like it was and kind of fun to do the research though i'm sure it has yeah. to be fascinating i one thing that you said about the newspapers i really appreciate and that is that it was really what was known to the community at the time i think when we look at newspapers and we think about news reporting taking primary sources or newspapers as primary sources in that mm -hmm. sense is really important. Uh, we don't know if all of, in fact, usually not all, all the facts are not always reported, mm -hmm. but what is known at the moment is often reported uh, depending on the, the news outlet. The other thing, and this is the area that I wanted to dig in a little bit from our last conversation that we 
I don't think I was ready because I think you shared this, this whole, um, background about what you did and what a, a really, um, in some ways, the, the word that's coming to mind is kind of like traumatic mm-hmm. event that mm-hmm. your, your high school students were looking at. And when you say that it was 10 years ago, that word trauma, I don't know, was one that at least I do, it wasn't one that I was using 10 years ago. It wasn't a term mm-hmm. I was using and wasn't aware of. I also think in, in I, I don't want to speak for like the general kind of educational population, but I think in general, it wasn't a word that at least I was hearing in the educational circles that I was in 10 years ago. And I know that one thing you mentioned when we spoke earlier was this idea that if you would do this again, if you would bring this to Mm -hmm. 2021 or when we spoke 2020, that this would look different, that this this look at this event would look different. Was this something that, the, was that specifically what the teacher was looking for? Was this event of this uh, young lady being murdered? Uh, specifically, he asked for information on the 1968 and 1969 race riots. So there were some specific incidents that sparked those um, reactions. And one of them was the killing of Vivian Strong. So that came up through that research that I did. It was not something I had ever been aware of. Um, I asked my parents who were alive at the time, um, would have been teenagers or, you know, like into young adulthood. And they didn't really remember it being talked about a whole lot um, in their neighborhoods, but they weren't in that. That's not where they lived. So... And I think my dad would have been in the Navy at the time. So he wasn't even in town. Um, But it was not something, the way that news is communicated now, we can't escape it, right? Like it is, it is there no matter where we go. um, It is not just in print. It's not just on the radio. It's not in the five o'clock news. It is persistent and invasive. So if something like that were to happen today, we know that it has happened. There's conversations that are sparked, you know, nationwide when someone dies at the hands of a police officer in a way that is, um, traumatic, exactly the word that you used. So we would have, I think, had a very different conversation had there been more national press about events like that at the time we were teaching this lesson. So in the last 10 years, unfortunately, we've seen many incidents that have sparked social justice conversations and um, led to the Black Lives Matter movement and all kinds of awareness that I think was not there. 
when we were doing this lesson, we, we would have approached it a little bit differently. I think that I would have been more aware of how what we talked about could be triggering for some of our students, um, how that experience needed to be spoken about maybe in a different way um, that was more understanding of the lived experiences of our students and their families and what they are seeing daily on the news and what they're talking about with their peers. So while we would still have taught the lesson itself, the way that we approached it, I think would be different now than it was then. I'm even thinking about, and, and this isn't something I often think about, to be honest with you, because in many instances, when I'm bringing in historical documents with my students who admittedly are, are younger than your students, so there's going to be different topics that are going to be brought right. up. Um, but one thing that I don't always have to think about, but I'm thinking in your case, if you would do this in 2021, mm -hmm. this would be at the forefront, is just the social emotional well-being of your students when we're yes. talking about historical documents. I know that there are some great, I'd say discussions that have gone on on different blog posts that are coming to mind right now, but I don't know that anyone's really put their finger on how to address some of these really horrific elements of history, mm -hmm. which as you said, can be very triggering for a lot of our students. Mm -hmm. And one thing I'm even wondering, as you were talking earlier about the sources themselves, is that you may have, you may have made a decision not even to bring in some of those sources, depending on, again, and without having reading them, I'm just kind mm -hmm. of guessing, but depending on how the event itself was portrayed. And I, I think that rather than not bringing them in, we would have just had a, a deeper conversation about keep in mind that this was written, you know, in 1968, 1969, the words that people used were very different. We're not saying that they are words that we would use today, um, but this is what would have been available to the general public at that time. So let's look at it through this historical lens. Let's see what we can learn from that and really try as best we can to put a little distance between what is being said then and how we would say things now. I'm thinking too about one, some work that I've done in the past few months with the picture book and primary source blog post. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the, let the teach, let, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about the, let the children march picture mm -hmm. book. And that book had been out for a little while and I just was not sure how to approach it because of some of the exact things that you're saying even though I probably saw it being used with high school or maybe middle school students. And one thing that I decided to do when I felt like I was ready to have an approach that I thought would work for students was finding primary sources that would 
elevate the voices of those children, of those protesters. I'm thinking then to the interview, the PBS interview mm -hmm. that you mentioned of the sister of uh, Vivian Strong, and probably in a way that it was probably an interview, again, I haven't listened to it, mm -hmm. but that honored her, that elevated yes. her, that personalized her, where that's probably something that doesn't happen in the same way or maybe even at all in some of these newspaper articles. Right. So I, I really do appreciate the fact that you brought that piece in because I think that it puts a focus uh, where we want it with our students when we're talking mm -hmm. about historical moments and that is around the people. I'm also thinking about the, the circle of viewpoints approach strategy that you can do from Harvard's Project Zero, where students are looking at who's impacted by a particular mm -hmm. event and how they might react to it. I think you had an interesting set of resources when you have a set of newspapers that are uh, probably predominantly read by Black Americans, local, Right. Mm -hmm. and, and another set of newspapers that are probably read predominantly by white Americans. And so you've got not only two groups of individuals, but you also have two sets of reporting on the particular event. And as you mentioned, this idea of looking at those and, and having some understanding of how that was how that event was known to both of those communities. Right. I think can be a part of of taking an experience that can be more traumatic and understanding what people at the time would have known of it. Right. Well, and I think that you could look for when you're looking at historical newspapers and the way that events were reported and whatever event it happens to be in your community what's missing from that report. One of the things that I talk about with my students now is that there is no unbiased source. It doesn't matter how liberal or conservative or down the middle they are. Every source has bias because the publishers have to decide what to include and what not to include. You only have so much space for a newspaper article, it's only so many words. There is no way that you can include all of the perspectives and all of the details and all of the information in that short space. So looking at what was chosen to be included can lead to questions of, okay, what was left out? What is the perspective that is being given to me based off of what was chosen to be included in this 1968-1969 article in this publication versus this publication? And where are the pieces that need more elaboration? We may never get that because it was something that happened so long ago, but what would we want to know? What are the things that if we could do that historical research on these events that we'd want to know more about? And I think asking those big questions that may not have clear answers 
is super helpful for students because life does not always give you very clear answers to things. Um, and you may not get the information that you want. We're in a society now where information is literally at your fingertips, right? But that doesn't always mean that you get the whole story, the entire picture, all of what you want to know. So I think looking at those historical documents and thinking about what's missing or what you want to know more about can help prepare you as you look at things going on in the present day too. Absolutely. I'm, I keep going back to this in my head, this vo voices that aren't heard. Who are the voices that aren't heard? And you're, right. you're absolutely right that some of these voices may never have been captured mm -hmm. or they may not have been kept. And so if we're talking about events that are decades old or, or longer, that we might end up with questions. But I think part of the important thing is to recognize the voices that are and are not there. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of that circle of viewpoints strategy that I mentioned before helps students get to that point. I, yep. and I also think, as you mentioned, just kind of, this can be when we have our older students who are researching, depending on how the learning is structured, that can be a driver to look deeper, to look for more, to look at other nooks and crannies when they essentially are not only doing that recognition, but also asking their own questions. Like you mentioned, those big questions that, they may not have answers to. And I have to imagine when you're doing a lesson like this, when you're doing uh, a topic that at best can be described as very sensitive to mm -hmm. students, there's going to be questions. There's going to be things that students want to know. And even just giving them that space to ask those questions as a teacher, as a librarian, I think can be so important. And I think like one of the, the things that I forget sometimes to focus on or showcase with students is that what's happening now will be somebody's primary sources someday. So the newspapers that are being written, the stories that are being shared, how major events in our nation and our world's history are covered decades from now, someone will look back on that as their primary source. What are they going to be missing from what is being shared now? So that's another way to maybe tie some of that in there is, okay, now we've looked at this historical piece and we're looking to see what's missing in that. Well, let's think about how stories are covered in 2021. When we look at that news coverage, how is that, you know, if there's a high school student 50 years from now, looking back on the events of today, what are the things they're going to want to know that aren't included? Who are the voices that aren't being heard? Where's the um, growth that we could have in sharing those stories um, for the future, not just for today? I agree with you. Yeah, I think that bridge, I, not only is is this particular topic that you shared with us tonight, as you pointed out, such a bridge to today. Students mm -hmm. are going to connect with that particular event because of things that they know of in their own lives, what they've seen on the news, what they've heard mm -hmm. people talk about, what they've spoken about, worried about, wondered about. 
and then starting to take that idea of voices today and to end of the past and kind of connecting them together really starts to get into potentially some opportunities for social justice, some opportunities mm -hmm. for kind of on at the moment learning and um, activism that I think can be really important for a lot of our young learners. And that can happen, I think, not just with high school students. I think that that, if well-crafted, can happen across the board. Absolutely. I lo I and love there's, that there's pieces of all of our community's histories that can be celebrated and that we can learn from, right? Um, that probably are not spoken about or taught explicitly outside of a class like your town's history, you know? So where are some opportunities that we can pull those things into other courses? Um, we had a class for second grade students, an, an assignment for them where we looked at historical images and information about their school. So, you know, if their school was around for a hundred years, they're going to have a lot more, obviously, to look at than ones that are newer. But, you know, looking at pictures of kids from the Depression. How to look at that picture and see what that tells you. What story does that tell you? What do you want to know more about? So you can take these pieces of your local history, whether it's your school, your neighborhood, your city, and connect that to what your students are learning and give them some context as you're looking at primary sources and as you're talking about you know information literacy and all of these things make it real to them make it a piece of where they are and where they live and their community i can't yeah. remember if i talked about this when we spoke a few months ago but what you just said reminded me of a project that we were working on right before COVID really hit. I think our last meeting was in February with our local history museum, and we were working on this project for first grade. And it was all just around the trolley system that used to run oh, through yeah. our city. And as you mentioned, it's grounds them in their own reality. Mm -hmm. uh, that I think can be more engaging and enjoyable when we're talking about those happy events. I also think as, as we're talking about the, the, this event, uh, Vivian Strong, Strong's murder, they can also be more traumatic to students yeah. when it's, when they know where this happened, even if the win is so far into the past. Can we wrap up with just a mention of working with these local institutions because i always find yeah. it so helpful and the individuals specifically the individuals there so helpful uh, i know that you mentioned kind of these drawers of, of files <laughs> and those types of things and i think you see a lot more of that even still today yeah. with a lot of these local institutions but well, can you talk a little bit thing. more it's about that yeah super expensive to digitize things like it's not like there it's not just scanning papers there's there's stuff that goes into that so it's not an easy process to scan decades of material and so and so i think that that's one of the things to just be aware of that not everything exists digitally 
Um, the his County Historical Society was the place that I reached out to and they were more than happy to have me come down. The person who worked there walked me through how to do everything and was just thrilled to have someone there looking at the things that they had available. We have a history museum that is in our in Omaha that um, has a wealth of photographs and other information that they have freely available online, as well as like a whole archive of materials in the back. You can call and request and have um, find out if they have certain pieces of information from different time periods and see what they have available online and pull those things to work with students. Um, our university in town also has an archives that they pull because there's major events that have gone through university as well. Um, so that's another resource that I would reach out to. Any kind of local museums, um, educational institutions. So like the historical archives were in our library services department for the school district. And I managed those through one of my jobs um, at one time. And again, it was just filing cabinets full of photographs and articles and like the old books you would flip through to see who worked where and that kind of thing. So those things exist. And I guarantee that the people who manage them want to talk to you about it. <laughs> you know, like they would not be doing that job if they weren't excited about the information and sharing that information with other people. And so, other, yeah. The other piece I found too is that because there's so many of these smaller places and we've got the same thing in the St. Louis and mm -hmm. Missouri and Southern Illinois area, because there's some of these places, some quite large, some quite small, they of course all hold different items. They prioritize mm -hmm. the collection and curation of different items. If you come into one of these places having an idea of what you're looking for, be it a topic or even a, a format of information. So for example, I'm looking for photographs because I'm working with younger students and I really think that's gonna be the format that I'm looking for on this particular topic. Right. I found so many times that if one institution doesn't have it, somebody in there has an idea of who might. I yep. mean, they're, they're, a, they're a, knit, a knit community. And so they want to not only share their things, but they want to get you to whatever it is that you're looking for. Yep, absolutely. I think archivists get kind of a bad rap that they're real solo people. I don't think that's the case. I think that they are excited to share the things that they've found, you know, because they find really cool stuff that they want to tell people about. So I think that um, we do ourselves a disservice by not collaborating with those community partners. And most of the time, they are free resources that you're able to access because they are through museums and educational institutions and things like that. So it's not usually at cost to you to be able to do that. And so many times when us as school librarians can really be the bridge because those mm -hmm. individuals know where the things are, but they don't necessarily know the best way maybe for students to interact with them. Right. And teachers, as you mentioned, your example, wasn't able to find the content. And 
it sounds like even once it was all there in front of him, having you as a thinking partner is another great collaboration that's going on. Mm -hmm. So you get to play both of these collaborative roles in ways which can be really powerful, a really powerful one to take on as a school librarian. We, I was very lucky in this project with the teacher that I worked with that he was really very interested in collaboration from start to finish. So it was, can you help me find the resources? And then, wow, you found me like actual newspaper resources. That's so cool. So what are we going to do with those? And then we kind of talked through a lesson and then he said, would you like to come teach this? with my students. And I was like, well, yeah, that sounds fantastic. So we were able to do that over a few years before I left for another job. But um, it truly was one of those things that was just a hallway conversation that turned into something that was, I think, much richer than either one of us anticipated based off of that really brief, hey, can you help me find question. And it sounds like so much of that collaboration probably hinged on the willingness, not only for him to come and have a conversation with you, but you to come in and want to continue that conversation as opposed to saying, here, I found some things for you. Let me know if you need anything else. It sounds like right. that conversation continued. And I think that's one of the powers when we do that collaboration. And I think that when we talk about these historical documents, they need collaboration like that. Mm -hmm. These things can get complicated as we've talked about in our conversation here and having multiple voices come in and work through how the learning is going to take place around these historical items, I think can be really valuable ultimately to the student learning that happens. Courtney, <laughs> I, want, I want to thank you for not only your time today, but for our rough draft we did a couple of months ago. I've got to thank you for this conversation. I find it invaluable. And anytime you want a, a stage, as you put it, to talk about <laughs> primary sources, you know you've got one here. I really appreciate you spending some time with oh, us thank today. Thank you. I always learn so much from all of the people who take the time to put podcasts out. So a huge shout out to the people who create like you do, because it gives me an opportunity to learn more in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. So thank you for your time as well. Mm -hmm.